And that's punishment, I guess. But, but you're finished. And so you don't experience eternal, ongoing punishment. You just experience that one-time, momentary annihilation. Now, in one sense, I, I certainly can understand why you would want to think this. Because it's a whole lot easier to consider your loved ones consumed in a moment than it is to consider them being eternally punished forever. And somehow it seems unfair of God to do that. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Everyone feels the heat of the sun, and therefore everyone moving to Romans 1 knows that there is a God. His eternal power, his divine attributes are clearly seen, having been understood, having been understood through what has been made. Every man knows there is a God. But only those who have trusted in Christ have entered into a relationship with that God, those who actually know God a true relationship. And because it's bound up in this next phrase, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those, and in the and would, would, it gives a further condition, but really the two conditions are directly related. It's explaining it. They don't know God. And as a result, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, obey the gospel. What does that mean? Repent and believe. And out of the fruit of that comes obedience. The fruit of repentance is obedience. These are those who will suffer under this flaming fire. And these are those who, whether they actively do it or, or, you know, whether, whether they're, they're, they're indifferent seemingly to the people of God, nonetheless, they do not know God. They don't obey the gospel of God. Verse nine, these will pay the penalty. How could it be more clear? A just God dealing out retribution, true crimes committed, receiving the weightiness or really the just value the just response to those crimes, because they have broken the law and therefore they pay the penalty. All of these are true. This means there's, again, a real God with a real standard, with real justice, who enacts that justice. These are legal words. And these are words that we would do well not to forget, not only for ourselves, if we are believers, to be thankful that God saved us even though in our original state we were afflictors of God's people, we did deserve retribution for our sin, and we did commit a crime that made us guilty or made us worthy of paying the penalty. But also to be very clear to unbelievers that there is no escape. They will not at the end of time simply say, well, I don't have to pay that penalty. I don't, I don't deserve retribution. I, I knew you. I knew about you. No, none of those things will matter. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Could not be more clear than that. Eternal. Well, we're going to flesh that out here in just a minute. What does eternal destruction actually mean? Does it mean you're, you're destroyed in just a moment and then you're done for all of eternity? Or does it in fact mean that you are in the process of being destroyed for all of eternity? Eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That, by the way, should give you a really clear clue as to what eternal destruction actually means. If you're gone in a moment, yes, yeah, certainly you're away from his presence and his eternal power. That, that's meaningless. If you're burned up in a moment, then who cares? Because, all right, you weren't in his presence for, what, a second? I think even, the, even our understanding of eternal destruction is clearly laid out by the fact that for eternity, in that destruction, you will be away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, and you will know it. And that will be part of that punishment, an eternal punishment, active pain, complete separation. Verse 10, when he comes, now here's, here's the flip side. This is how the baptism of fire affects the believer. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. His saints. You don't hear believers referred to as saints very often these days. It sounds somewhat holier than thou, doesn't it? We're saints. But that's what the Bible calls us over and over and over. Not because we in and of ourselves have accomplished something, because we are saintly, but because he has set us apart in himself. And because our actions do reflect the greatness of our God. They reflect his righteousness. We are saints, those set apart by God to serve God, to honor God, and empowered to do those actions that flow out of holy people. That's who we are. And he comes to be glorified in his saints. He's already being glorified. He desires to be fully glorified by removing our sin completely, removing this body, replacing it with a new one, leaving intact the inner man, which has already been changed. So the fullness of his glory flows out through us, through a renewed body, and it is not in any way muted by our own sin. What a blessing. That's the baptism of fire, as it were, for believers. Unbelievers gone into judgment, eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Believers glorified. He comes to be glorified in his saints. What an amazing thought. He comes, yes, to, to demonstrate his glory, but how is he going to do that? Through you and through life. We're true believers. I mean, you, you ought to long for this day. This is the day when you will finally bring the glory to God that you have so longed to do for all your life. You've longed to bring him glory this way. You hate it when you sin. You hate the fact that your sin mutes his glory because people see that sin and they go, where's Jesus in that? You hate that. Every true believer hates it. And they long for Christ to be fully glorified. It will only happen on this day when your sin is removed. And so you long that he... Now, again, sometimes we long for heaven for our own glory. And there will be much glory. But it's all bound up in his looking great. That, that's glory. He looks great. He deserves, he is seen to be as valuable as he truly is. All his character, all his power, all his, his justice and might, his grace and his love clearly displayed through his saints finally on that day. Can you imagine? And not only simply individually, but the church triumphant and really then all the people of God finally representing him as a unit with the value that he so deserves. And, and that has never been done. His ethnic people in the Old Testament didn't do that. Unfortunately, his church, his visible church in this day and age, and even his invisible church, doesn't fully do that because of the sin that is there. Finally, as a group, as a unit, we will be the church that we are supposed to be. We will be the people of God that we were called to be. Finally, that's what happens on this day for believers. But it only happens in opposition to the fact that those who are not in that kingdom, those who are not saints, those who persecuted the, the church of God, who did not know God and did not obey his gospel, are forever being destroyed in, with eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from his glory. One does not happen without the other. Everyone doesn't win. 
These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Finally, we will see him. Finally, we will understand him. Finally, we will be able to give him that glory, to marvel in him fully. Did you enjoy singing this morning? I did. I enjoy singing every time we come together. Why? Because those songs give us a little bit of a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and the glory of God, right? That's the idea, but not enough, not sufficient. Not one of us worshiped here sufficiently this morning, whether you cried or raised your hands or bowed down. None of us worshiped sufficiently because our sin kept us from it. We didn't fully see who he was, but we will on that day, and we will marvel. And that's, that's the glory for us. But I want you for a moment, again, to think about the greatness, to to try to get a little bit of a glimpse of how great that will be when God is glorified in his people, when you finally can marvel at him for the greatness that he is, and then to consider being shut off from that for all of eternity, never to marvel, never to experience his glory, never to understand his greatness. And on top of that, rather rather than enjoying eternal pleasure in the sense of always being in a right relationship with God, No tears, no sadness, no sickness, no pain. Instead of that, pain eternally, overwhelmingly, intensely for all of eternity. When we contemplate the one while we're on this earth, we need to contemplate the other. And it should drive us then to an increased thankfulness because if you are just considering the joys of heaven, Without understanding that you were saved, snatched from the flames of hell, you do not appreciate it properly, and neither do I. If there's anything that has been brought home to me as I've been studying these texts, it's that I don't appreciate God enough because I don't appreciate hell enough. And I don't think about it because I don't want to think about it. And I don't want to dwell on it because it bothers me. It bothers me that relatives of mine are headed there. It bothers me that people in the city are going there, and I don't like to think about it. And I need to, because the message of the herald is that judgment is coming. In fact, judgment essentially is here. The king was there. Now, what John didn't understand, back to our text, what he didn't understand was that there was a period of time in between those two things, a period of time between the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would come at Pentecost and now comes to all believers immediately, and when the baptism of fire would actually come. But this is standard for Old Testament prophecy, is it not? The vast majority of times in the Old Testament, the prophets are predicting the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Davidic king, all of these things that are going to happen. And right with that, they're saying, and he will come and bring his judgment and he will, he will finish out this work. He will judge unbelievers. But there is a period of time that was not seen, that was not understood well in the Old Testament. And yet that's the time in which we actually live before judgment or excuse me, baptism by the Holy Spirit between the Holy Spirit and the and fire has been so far about 2,000 years. That should, by the way, tell us something about prophecy. That when we think we've got it all right and we think we've got it all nailed down and we understand all of this, that there might be something yet coming, something that we don't even fully get. Now, I think Scripture lays out for us what those things are. I think we, we can see them, but it hasn't happened yet. So for John, his understanding is when, when the king comes, certainly what he's going to do is he's going to bring the Holy Spirit. That was the sign of the new covenant. Pouring out of the Spirit of God. Here it is. Here is the primary blessing. I mean, do you guys get that? We haven't had a chance to get into it. We'll get into it more. That the primary blessing of the new covenant is the Spirit. Yes, the things that flow from the Spirit are wonderful. 
even salvation and sanctification, all the things that flow. But the spirit of God is the gift. That's what we receive. That's not taught on very often either, For maybe for fear of people going too charismatic. I don't know. The spirit of God and the receipt of the spirit is the primary blessing because that's the presence of Christ. And without that presence and without that blessing, there is no true salvation in this age. And there is no appreciation of and service of God. And there is no glory to God as he so richly deserves because that's what the Spirit does. We must understand that work of the Spirit. It is a tremendous blessing. But as I said, we must also understand the nature of judgment. So the baptism of judgment. So Jesus is the judge and the baptism of judgment is that Jesus baptizes with fire. And therefore, the nature of that judgment. Now let's begin to, as, as we're back in Matthew, that was really the end fire. There's much more to be said, and we'll layer that out as we work through the book of Matthew. Jesus is going to talk a lot more about hell, right? But that's the end fire. Now let's talk about verse 12 of Matthew. What's the winnowing fork? Well, what's going on here? Well, it relates directly, again, this is just an explanation of this baptism by fire. This is what happens when the baptism by fire comes. We've looked at it in big picture terms in 2 Thessalonians 1. Now we'll just kind of get it in, in, in this in this one verse. In this baptism by fire, here's the picture. We have another picture. In verse 10, we have the picture of the axe laid at the root of the tree, really in backswing. The axe is on its way. Right? Just a moment, just a breath between you and that axe which cuts you down and you get thrown into the fire. Well, now we have another very visceral example and one that's very hard for us to get hold of. When was the last time you saw a winnowing fork? Some of you like, well, okay, I've got a farm, right? And, and be, even on the farm these days, you know, there are people who are not winnowing. They're not throwing stuff up in the air, right? They're taking it with a combine. So you don't, you don't see this at all, but this would have been everywhere in, in New Testament Israel. Everywhere from, from the time of, up to Christ, all the way up to Christ. This is how you did it. You had the, you had the grain, you, and again, I'm not, a, I'm not a farmer. I'm not going to try to get all this just right for you. I'm going to try to get the big picture on this because even I don't get this fully. Right, but so you do something with the grain. You, you you chop it up. You put it in sheaves, and and then you you run over it with a threshing sledge. And I don't even know what that is, but you do that. And, and it's on it's on a you know it, it's on a maybe a rocky outcropping, flat outcropping. So when you grind it, it actually breaks it up. Right, and these would have been all spread all throughout Israel during this time. This is an agrarian society. This is how they lived generally as they grew grain. And then they would run the threshing sledge over, and what would be left was the grain, but it had all the husks along with it, all the, all the byproducts that were there, as well as the grain that needed to be taken from that. And no fancy combines to then split it all up and send it to the place it needs to go and spit it out on one side and the other. What you had to do is take your winnowing fork, to the best of my understanding, that grain would be piled up, as it were. And by the way, these rocky outcroppings or these places where you did the threshing were most often in places, higher places, where the wind would blow or where you could feel the wind blowing. Right, it's always blowing whether you're there or not. But nonetheless, so, so they're on, on top, and they've got the pile of grain, or however exactly they did it. They take the winnowing fork, and you plunge it into that grain, and you throw it up in the air, or something like that. Right? And what happens when you do that is what? The wind blows, and the chaff, that which is left over, the byproducts, not the grain itself, it's lighter than the grain, and the wind blows it away. It separates it out. Now, you might have seen pictures of this with kind of maybe baskets or, or larger. Uh, some of those I've seen. I've never actually seen a picture of a winnowing fork, someone just using the fork itself. Right? But, so you might have seen something like this, and they stand and they throw it up in the air, the chaff blows it away. I don't know how many times you have to do this. I don't know how often this process takes. I, I don't know that. But that's the picture. And notice what it says here. The nature of judgment. Jesus' judgment is imminent. We'll talk more about that word. It's a very important word. It's coming. It's right at the door. In one sense, it wasn't even in the old, it was even in the Old Testament. What the imminency of Christ's coming was, well, his first coming was imminent in the Old Testament. 
right? Now that was done. The second coming is imminent for us. It could happen then at any time. Or it is, the time is short. It is right at the door. Because his winnowing fork is where? His winnowing fork is on the rack. No, look at your text. It doesn't say that. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Now, I don't even think it means he's got it and he's headed for the pile of grain. All right? Much like the axe laid at the root of the tree, the axe is in the hand, but the axe is in motion. It's working. It is almost as though in this picture, the winnowing fork is into the pile of grain. It is stuck in there. He is about to throw it up in the air. And the moment that that happens, the chaff will be swept away, then burned, as we will see. The grain will then be collected and put into the barn. It is as though the winnowing fork is in the pile of grain, which contains at this time both the grain itself and the byproducts, the husks that are left over from the threshing. It would have been, is a very powerful word picture. Isaiah 41.16, actually this is speaking of Israel, but it talks about the idea of winnowing. It says, you will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away. That's the idea. You'll throw them up in the air. You'll winnow, you take the winnowing fork, you throw them up in the air. The wind carries them away. The storm will scatter them, but you will rejoice in the Lord, and you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. But then Jeremiah 15.7, this is speaking of what happens, what God was doing to Israel, a judgment that was not yet the final judgment. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. They did not repent of their ways. Speaking of the coming judgment and being taken away into exile, the view is of winnowing. He puts the fork and he throws them up. And they are the chaff that is swept away because they have refused to repent. A judgment upon Israel at that time, which in through which or from which he brought out a remnant back to Israel. So this is Jesus' judgment. It is imminent. In the Old Testament prophetic viewpoint, the first and second comings of Christ are often viewed together as part of the same event. This is how John is viewing the coming of the Messiah. He's an Old Testament prophet. He's Elijah-like. He's the first Elijah forerunner, coming for the first return of Christ. The New Testament reveals, however, that there is a gap between the two comings, one in which the gospel goes to the Gentile nations, the times of the Gentiles, as it were, as Israel rejects their Messiah. And this will be, we'll be laying this out all the way through the book of Matthew as we watch this happen. It's starting right now as the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees reject him. Ultimately, all the people will turn against him, or nearly all of them. And as Israel rejects their their Messiah, their king, he then turns to the Gentiles. But he doesn't. His people do. The apostles that he sends out turn to the Gentiles. And that was all planned. Not some, it's sometimes called a parenthesis, which I think is a horrible way to describe the work of God's kingdom and bringing in the Gentiles. It's a robust portion of his full plan. That's what that is. Just not seen well. The parenthesis is sometimes described that way because between the Holy Spirit and fire is all those years but all part of God's plan, all fully known, right? And no secondary part of his plan. So from the Old Testament standpoint, it was imminent. Both were imminent. From our standpoint, there's only one left to happen. The first one has already happened. What's imminent now is that fire, is that judgment. However, after the work of Christ was completed and he ascended back to be with heaven, the testimony of the Bible is that a second coming could indeed happen at any time. So his judgment is imminent. We'll talk much more about that. What is imminency? What does it mean? When could it happen? I will just tell you this. Never anywhere in Scripture at any time are we told or are, are we? Are, is it given to us, well, he might be not coming for a while. Right? So live like that. Live like he's not going to show up. Live like he couldn't come. He might not actually come back the next moment. 
we are always told to live in that way, to live according to the imminency of his return. He could come at any time. The axe is speeding towards the root of the tree. The winnowing fork is about to be lifted out of the grain. That's how we live our lives. That's the reality of what is coming. Now, Jesus' judgment is not only imminent, it is also comprehensive. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Nothing left. He's not going to miss anybody or anything. There's not going to be a a little bit of chaff that doesn't actually get burned up. There's not going to be wheat that he missed. Oh, I I missed that one. We would do that when you sweep the floor, always with my daughters. Always. They sweep the floor and they say, I'm done, Daddy. And what does that mean? It means I have to go check it because they're not done. And as I tell them over and over, you're not done when you finish moving the broom across the floor. You are done when there's no dirt, right? You are, vacuuming works the same. They vacuum, I'm done. No, because you move the vacuum and spend time doesn't mean you're finished. You're finished when it's clean. Go look. Take that home if you, if you don't use that. But you've, you've been using it for years, most likely. You're finished when it's clean. And Jesus will be finished when all the chaff is burned and all the wheat is gathered, not some, no one left. No, no in-between state, no purgatory, no going to later on become wheat. No, everything finished at this judgment time. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. The wheat will be gathered. He will gather his wheat into the barn. Believers, so much here and yet we'll leave it for another time. There's much to be discussed. We'll, we'll move through all of this as we continue through the book of Matthew. Wheat, true believers. We'll talk over and over about the kingdom and, and Jesus gives multiple illustrations of how this works as everyone is gathered in and then the weed is, is carefully prepared or whatever he's going, whatever illustration he's using at that time. In this case, the wheat, believers gathered, Matthew 13, 30, one of those illustrations, there's weed and tares that are sown into a field. He says, allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the tar- time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them up, but gather the weed into my barn. Another illustration, the actual word, they're actually reaping at that time, taking away the tares, plants, and, and the wheat. Here it's a little different with the wheat threshed and throwing it up in the air and the, and the chaff being blown away, but a similar idea. All the wheat gathered and the chaff burned. He will burn it all up. Psalm 1, 4, and 5, you're familiar with these verses. Contrast of the righteous and the wicked. The righteous man does what? In his law, he delights. In his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked, Psalm 1, verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Sinners can sit in the assembly of the righteous right now, and that might be some of you. I'm not talking sinners in, in, in the case of people that commit sin, because all of us commit sin. I'm talking about sinners. You're a sinner at, at heart. Your heart has not been converted. You're not changed. You're in your sin. You're rebellious in your sin. You ultimately love your sin. Sinners can sit with believers now. They can sit in this assembly. But when the day, they can, they can lie among the wheat. But in the day of judgment, all will be revealed. And the wheat will be gathered, the chaff blown away, the wheat stored in the barn, the chaff burned. So you can sit here now and look fine. And there's people all over this country sitting in churches, sinners who have not repented. Unrepentant sinners. I'll go ahead and add the word. That's, the Bible doesn't add that in this case. Just those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. This doesn't save you. And when the judgment time comes, it will be very clear then to all. And those who are unbelievers will be burned in eternal fire. Don't think you can hide in this assembly. That you can hide because you are a Calvinist. You believe in reformed doctrine. You can hide for any reason whatsoever. You cannot hide. 
Oh, you can hide from us. But you cannot hide from the eternal God of the universe, and the judgment will reveal that. That is why it is so important for a church to seek to guard this up front so that we do not, you cannot hide here. That's the goal. We, we can't do that. We don't know the hearts, and we can't, you know, we can't bring to light everyone's sin. But that's the goal here. Do you see what a blessing that is? If we are living for righteousness, if we are living as wheat, if we are pursuing the Lord Jesus, if we have the standards that he has, holding them in, in the way that we're supposed to biblically, not holier than thou, self-righteous like the scribes and Pharisees, if we're properly pursuing church discipline and, and properly pursuing church holiness as we're supposed to, what happens is no one can hide. And your sin is revealed, and you either repent or you're removed. That's, that's the bigger picture. Do you realize how serious that is? But why? Because if the church doesn't do that, it's a precious blessing to you. If we don't do that here, we fail because you're going to reach the day of judgment and you might somehow be surprised. Now, I believe, I believe you know if you're not a believer, but we didn't do our job to press you. We didn't do our job to bring that unbelief to the surface so that it would be known and you could turn and repent. That's part of what the church does. It's very important so that you don't spend eternity in hell. And also so that we as a church don't look around and say, oh, believers look like that? I'll look like that. Maybe indicating their own unbelief and being hardened in it because everybody looks the same. In the end, hear me clearly, in the end, they will not look the same. There's wheat and there's chaff. The wheat will be gathered into the barn and the chaff burned. Lastly, J Jesus' judgment is consuming. It is consuming. It says he will burn up the chaff with what? Unquenchable fire. What does this mean? The unquenchable fire means simply, again, that they're burned up in a moment. By the way, annihilationism, very popular, growing ever increasingly popular in evangelical circles today. That is, there is a real hell. There is a real punishment. But the real hell is you enter into that punishment, you are consumed in a moment, and you're done. And that's punishment, I guess. But, but you're finished. And so you don't experience eternal, ongoing punishment. You just experience that one-time, momentary annihilation. Now, in one sense... I certainly can understand why you would want to think this. Because it's a whole lot easier to consider your loved ones consumed in a moment than it is to consider them being eternally punished forever. And somehow it seems unfair of God to do that. Which is why we want to save him from that unfairness by creating, inventing a doctrine like annihilation. And there are, again, many, many heavy-hitting well, at least certainly some heavy-hitting men within evangelical circles who are turning to this. Because it's much more palatable to a world that, that, that simply has no concept of eternal justice, eternal holiness, or eternal punishment. And in one sense, it would be wonderful to believe that. There's only one problem. It is totally unscriptural. It is absolutely unsupported by any scripture anywhere. Even this, uh, and th some of these are, uh, that's what it's turned to, unquenchable fire, <laughs> burned up. But what's the whole idea of unquenchable fire? It never goes out. And what sense does it make? It makes no sense in talking about eternal punishment to call it unquenchable if you're not going to be consumed by it for as long as it remains unquenchable. It's called unquenchable because the picture is you're in it forever. It never stops burning. Now, I'd like to show you just a few passages that support this, that really make this very clear. I've already looked at one, and then we'll be done for this morning. Malachi 4.1, just really just speaking of the Old Testament view of how this works. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a, a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be the chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it will leave them neither root nor branch. He really 
switches illustrations in the middle. Unbelievers are the unwanted leftovers of the harvest, and they will be treated as such. They have fallen short of his glory and refuse to believe in his son, and so they pay the price with eternal active punishment. And again, this is not some kind of slam on unbelievers in the sense that, you know, you're, you're nothing, you're worthless. The issue is that right now you have every opportunity to turn, every opportunity to repent. But if you do not turn, then you are the useless leftovers. I didn't say it, Scripture does. Right now, the call to you is repent and believe. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the call right now. But it is, is merely useless leftovers that unbelievers will be. Why useless? Because you were created for one thing, to worship, serve, and honor the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you don't do that here, you will not be able to do it then for eternity, and you are useless. Again, I'm not, I'm not insulting you personally in one sense, and certainly not now yet. But you will be, and you are one throw of the winnowing fork, one sweep of the axe away from being nothing more than useless leftovers. But actually, really, much more than that, because the leftovers don't just get thrown, thrown aside and not dealt with. They are burned with unquenchable fire. Matthew 5.22, Jesus says, But I say to you, so th- this, un- this consuming judgment is eternal. It's eternal. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. We don't have time to turn to all these this morning, but I I just want to get this started. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, this is the time of the tribulation. This is the time when the beast comes and stamps people with his mark. It says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. That's the unbelievers who have the mark, but that's hell. Ultimately, that will be the lake of fire. That's where all unbelievers go. And the smoke of that burning, there's much to talk about there, and that's later, that it actually rises up before God and his angels, that he doesn't hide himself from that because he is not, a, he is not afraid of or ashamed of his own righteousness and his own judgment. But it says they have no rest day or night in the eternal state. That burning goes on, the smoke goes up from them forever and ever. Scripture is incredibly clear that this is an eternal punishment ongoing. Next, that this punishment is active, painful. Active and painful. Not, as C.S. Lewis described it in The Great Divorce and in other places. He doesn't, he, he doesn't even come close, I, I don't think, to getting hell right. Mentally, with, with some mental pictures and things like that, fine. But he, hell is not described as merely mental torment or anguish. It will be that. It certainly will be that. That's my third point. But it is active, physical punishment. How can I say that? Because we will have physical bodies, as in new bodies. Uh, should I say we will have bodies that uh, retain humanity? That's why it's not just believers that have resurrected bodies. It's unbelievers. And those unbelievers, those bodies capable of feeling, capable of experiencing, capable of, capable of sensory perception, will be experiencing that burning and that flame for all of eternity. That's why they have resurrected bodies. He doesn't just turn them into spirits who cannot feel. How exactly it is that people like the beast or others who are spirits and the angels, how exactly their punishment works, I don't know. They're part of that. I don't know exactly how that works, but that does not eliminate the fact that there will be bodies capable of feeling, touching, like Jesus' body was after his resurrection. Those bodies are the bodies that will be in hell experiencing the pain of fire. It's not only an illustration. It is that. 
but it's a picture then also of the truth of what is happening. Matthew 8, 12, the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. By the way, it doesn't mean it's only darkness and there is no flame. Right? Simply a picture there of being away from the presence and glory of God, which is my last point. He will cast them into outer darkness in a place, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, pain. And again, I think very clearly from Revelation, from Matthew chapter 5, which we'll see actual physical pain weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then number three, the removal from the presence of God. This is the other horror of hell. Imagine all these piled on top of each other. It's forever. It's actual physical pain. Resurrected bodies feeling that pain. And it is then removal from the presence of God. Second Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It doesn't just say away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. It says eternal destruction, that ongoing punishment that goes on, which is also away from his presence and his glory. So there's the contemplation, the understanding, the mental, because remember, resurrected bodies also think and they know and they understand what is happening to them. And they will understand that for all of eternity, they've been separated from the greatness of the one that they rejected. And there will be a mental pain beyond all imagining. No glory of God. No, guys, we experience, every man at this time experiences the presence of God. Not in them personally, but the grace of God and his presence in this world protecting them from eternal judgment. When that is removed, there is no presence. There is nothing. And there's a recognition of that for all of eternity. You guys, I, I, I urge you, I call on you. Heed the message of the herald. Turn to Christ. Repent and believe. Confess your sin. Seek to enter the kingdom. Perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Recognize and respond to the reality of eternal judgment. Establish a relationship with the king of kings. For this eternal judgment is as sure as eternal heaven. Let us contemplate these things as we carefully considering them scripturally that we might be driven to greater thankfulness to our God for saving us and greater urgency to be his agents of salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word and that you do not hold back from us the truth of where we will be apart from you. And you call to us to repent. And Lord, I pray that for those who have, that there would be a, a rejoicing in the eternal hell that they have been saved from. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts over those who have not yet responded to your call, that we would call out to them that they would be saved from this eternal destruction. And Lord, I pray as well that if there are any unbelievers yet sitting here this morning, seeming to be part of the church, seeming to be involved in all that goes on, and yet chaff among the wheat, tares among the wheat, I pray that they would repent and believe that they would be able to be part of your, your believing community, which is gathered to you at the end of time. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. 
There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.